Let's so uh, cheers. Let's podcast, brother. Great. Got my coffee right here. Thank God for that. Uh, welcome, one and all, to episode two of the Columbia Reunion, and we got this is a this is a huge get for the show. Alan Sahalitsky. I'm kind of going through my deep bench of Russian Jews uh, for the show, but you know it's going to work out fine. I want to throw some other people in. Um, Alan is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for a long time. Um, and he's got a fascinating mind, super funny, uh, and does all sorts of like economics, finance stuff, which he, he can help us understand what the hell's happening in this world. Um, welcome to the show, Alan. Well, thank you, Pavel. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's nice to to chat with you more publicly, uh, aside from all of the very very uh, one-on-one private conversations we've had. How about the years. two and a half hours we just spent trying to figure out microphones and goddamn recording stuff? We did it though, so we did. I, I was I was actually wondering all that time if if you're going to bring it up on the actual. Of course, uh, I, I can't handle it. Okay, I should have known better. I guess you're right. Yeah, well, we figured it out and. I think it was a test. You know, I've been meditating a little bit, and like you're, say, you're saying in general, or while we were trying to figure in general, out. but yeah. then that kind of made me. My mind was like getting all like upset and like bubbly from like like why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? And like you, what basically what I'm trying to say is through meditation, I recognized that was happening. Um, I'm not saying that I was able to stop it necessarily, but at least I recognized it. So that's half the battle. Well, I think I think they say that meditation is a process. It's not a particular goal. Yeah, it's like everything in life. That's I, a very good point. I hate it. Like I was cleaning my apartment, and um, I just like damn every day. I just have to like clean a little bit, and it's like oh, it's like life. Every day you got to go work out. You got to do everything every day. There's no, there's never like you win the Super Bowl, you get a ring, you're done forever. That's true, but know you know the well. The the upside is, it always has you doing something and looking forward to something, right? I mean, think about the opposite. If all you had to do was just have one goal or achievement in mind and you did it, and then you were done, it's like okay, done. And and then what do you do for forever more, right? You, no, hundred percent you agree. Yeah, you need a little bit of that chase. I think that's that's the point. You, you yeah, but how come you feel like? Well, sometimes I feel like if I if I get ten million dollars then I'm going to be done and happy, which I know is not true, but still my mind sometimes thinks that. You know what I mean? I, I, it's probably one of those kind of natural, you know, in the midst of going through some sort of challenge, difficulty, struggle, whatever you might want to call it, people often have those thoughts go through their mind about, oh, well, what if this were easy? What if I just got this? You know, they always come up when things are tougher. But... Uh, but when things are less tough, they probably don't come up as often. And you're enjoying the challenges you get and, and all the other things you might be working on in the future. I've been enjoying my uh, sabbatical so far. We can talk about that later. Um, tell, do you remember how we met? So this is a Columbia Reunion podcast. We're going to have a lot of Columbia alumni listeners, I think. That's going to be probably our main audience. Um, and then, of course, we're going to go global. We're going to go big. But do you remember how we met? I, I, I think I do. I'm pretty sure that we met in our dorm. That's right. In my dorm. That's right. Were you in that dorm? I was in the dorm. You were sitting on my, on the, in, I have a pretty, like you were sitting on the hallway 
I think talking to uh, oh, yes. Elizabeth now, Shamoud. You know yeah, now now I absolutely do remember. We were I was sitting in the hallway, so I was definitely in that dorm. But that's why that's why I was asking, were you in that dorm too? Because I have a clear recollection we met in my dorm. But I, I was on I was on the dorm. I lived on her floor. I lived on Shamoon's floor. Oh, okay. Now it's all coming back. It was a little long time ago, but yeah. All right, now I remember. So I was sitting on the floor, and then did was it Liz that? In, it was Liz. In, I keep saying Shamoon. Is that not her so name? She, yeah, but so so she she did introduce us. And yeah, she was like, that, "Oh, Pavel, like here's Alan, and Alan, and Pavel, happened, you guys are Russian or whatever." I, I think she happens, said something like that. It happens to be the case that when she decided to make an introduction, I was just on sitting on the floor. Okay, not the best <laughs> position, but all right, it, you know, it, it worked. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it was fine. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, cool. And and then the next thing I kind of remember is like. In the in the cafeteria, John Jay. Oh, what a cafeteria, right? Like anything you want, cereal, bring Tupperware container. Can you could you have that in the world anywhere else? What a cafeteria! Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure about uh, you know the food necessarily. I don't remember being it particularly excellent. I don't it's above prison bad. level. It was better than yeah, prison. No, no. Absolutely. In 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 the time that I've spent in prison, it's, <laughs> and it's not even a question. I would have preferred <laughs> Colombian food for sure. That's a joke. Just <laughs> yeah. For anyone listening and wondering, wait, did he actually? No, no, Alan never went to prison. Uh, the matzo brie, did they make you matzo brie in prison? Like, that's classic. When Wilma makes you the matzo brie, that's oh, a throwback. Wilma. Oh, I remember Wilma. I love omelets, and she made fantastic omelets. Yeah, and she was like, you know, she would always work there, I guess, for, for a long time, and she was just yeah. so nice and friendly. And I was just awesome. going to say, she was so sweet. Which is probably why I remember her so clearly. She was so, so sweet. Anyway. Mm. Yeah, it was fun. So anyway, what I remember is we're in that cafeteria, right? You know, as a student, you get all these meals. You go there, especially as a freshman. It's in, it's in the dorm, even where we live. And um, I guess we, I sit down for, for lunch. We were there. We sit down. We kind of have a conversation. And um, I think that was kind of the beginning of us, you know, us getting to know each other. And also, I think, you know, my name is Pavel. And you're like, yeah, my parents were like, oh, his name is Pavel. He's probably not Jewish. <laughs> and that sounds like, uh, sounds like my parents. <laughs> but then, you know, when you found out my persuasion, um, you know, that I was a tribe member. Shout out, Jews. Uh, you were, I think, that, that gave me more cred. And we kind of evolved from there. And, and you know, people backstory let's just be clear let's be clear cred in my parents eyes not not cred in mine in in my eyes you had already earned the cred oh that's, that's fair yeah, yeah yeah that's yeah. fair yeah old school you know i i used to have be have more old school myself now I've been, I've been a little more you know loosened up by all the all the world and all the life that i've lived not that it's you know i'm hopefully much more to live god bless bless up yeah <laughs> um what I was going to say is, oh, yeah, so, like, for Thanksgiving, I would sometimes not go back home to Baltimore, and I would stay in New York, and I would go to Alan's house, and like, for, like, other holidays. Oh, that's right. That's and so that's right. how my, I really kind of... My parents adopted uh, another child, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Your parents adopted another child to, to an extent. It was fun, and, like, I got to know you and your family. So, you know, we have... We'll always have that, and, uh, and then, we, you know, we'll live together for a, a little bit, at least for a year or two after college. Yeah. Um, and you've always been fascinated with economics, like, I don't know, finance would be the right world, markets, um, always like reading about it, you know, much more than myself, to be honest. And, uh, 
And I, I every, guess you hey, took... hey, every everybody's got their thing. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I like a lot of different stuff. None of it I want to mention on the podcast. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Everyone knows who I am. I don't really hide it. Um, so what did you do? Like, what do you, you know, people that don't know you want to know what the hell you've been up to. Can you give us a little, you know, give us a spiel? Yeah. Um, well, I'll try not to make it too much of a spiel. Um, so I, I was, I guess, early on um, a little bit strange in the sense that it was in high school. Uh, that I came across economics, which sounds funny to say now, um, but I they don't teach not... economics in high school, do they? No, so so I there was a class, but um, yeah. I decided that uh, rather than start to learn about it in that class, it was actually the year before that class <laughs> that I uh, picked up a few books on economics to read purely for fun, and um, so I read them, and I basically got hooked from the get go. And I don't really know, it's hard to pinpoint what it was that made me so hooked. Um, I'm sure there was some element of, wow, I feel like I understand something that's, you know, something that usually adults that have professional careers usually focus on. And here I am at this age, understanding it or thinking at least that, that I do. Um, yeah, so I'm sure it was some of that. Yeah, but... Um, this is what, macroeconomics? Because micro, I feel like, is like more intense math or whatever. This was like, low, like this is general stuff yeah. you're learning in principles. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, to be honest, I've, I've never really felt like there, there needs to be such a clear distinction. That's between fair. The two. I agree with only, you. Only because it, it, it almost makes it seem as though like they're... The, the laws and principles of economics are one way if you study it macro and completely different if you study, you know, it just, it just gives that impression. Yeah, yeah well, kind of I've taken two economics courses in my life. One was macro, the other one was micro. So, to, you yeah. know, and a lot of people are probably that I would say way. Oh, yeah, they so teach that's, a good, that's a good point, sure. right? It's just like the way they teach it in the book doesn't mean it's, that's not how the world works. Yeah, and and it's not it's not it's not an advance. It, it's not kind of like moving up to the more difficult level if you do one and then the other. The way it is in a lot of other fields, right? Like you can have like a you know one hundred one level class in whatever physics or anything else, and then you've got a more difficult. Like that's not really the, that's not the distinction with macro and micro. It's just two almost different flavors or studying two different areas, maybe. But okay. it's just one of those things where I, I never really understood why there needs to be such a hard and fast distinction between the two. I just think it gives the impression that somehow the rules are different. And I think in the world of economics, the rules are not really different. Maybe the size changes, maybe the geography changes, but economic principles are kind of what they are. What's like the most foundational text? Is it like Smith or whatever? Uh, uh, well, uh, the funny thing is, if, so in terms of economic history, it kind of depends how far back you go. I mean, they, they began doing, um, you know, call it sort of base level economic study many, many centuries ago. Um, and Could there you give had me been an example. Uh, so we had the, uh, this actually came up in a, um, conversation I recently had, the, there was a, a, sc a school of economic thought called the School of Salamanca, which is not really studied that much today, but it, it had 
a lot of kind of the original roots to what eventually became later economic study. And that, again, is going back centuries. Um, but if we're talking about what's the generally accepted starting point, uh, you could probably say around the time of uh, Smith and uh, Ricardo and uh, Marx and, you know, you fast forward a little bit and you start to get to, uh, into the, some of the American economists early on before the marginal revolution. Anyway, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's been around for a while, but the generally accepted starting point, definitely kind of Smith, Ricardo, Marx. Cool. I just looked up the Salamanca. Salamanca stuff is fascinating. I love when they find this cool shit. Yeah, it looks it's, like... Uh, it's been around for a while. It's been around like 1500s? Well, it, it, yeah, in, in the, right. In, in the sense that if you had to pinpoint when was economics kind of starting early on... You really so whenever we had markets and we start to trade shit, we're interested in how it works, kind of, right? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean it has to be as complex as it is today. It's just, you know, that really was the economics. It was just more basic. That's, that's all. What you get your degree in from college? From Columbia. Columbia yeah. College, even. I just went to the lowly engineering school. Yeah, I, I don't know how lowly, but... Um, the Foo Foundation, baby. Yeah. Um, it, uh, the degree was economics and political science. So and do you so, like that political side, too? I, I do like the political side, um, but I guess I just always found it more fascinating to analyze what's going on in global economies and markets more so than I did trying to analyze political developments. And I don't necessarily know why or why not. That might be the reason. It's just, you know, some people like some hobbies and they don't necessarily know why. But well, so that's I always intertwined, like the, right? Like they, they are. They're totally intertwined. And, and so I'll focus on political developments so much as they will impact economics and markets. But I'm not sure that, you know, if I were fully dedicated to political study that I would love that quite as much. Got it. But like the Federal Reserve, I guess that's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's a political entity, right? Would you call it that? Uh, it, in, in a sense. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was designed to be um, an independent institution um, in the early 1900s. And, but, you know, it's, it's often, it's sort of hard to separate that. Can you tell people the, like yeah. high level what the Federal Reserve is? What does it do? Yeah, so the, the Federal Reserve is the central bank in the United States, and just about um, every country or region around the world has a central bank, and they all differ in some way depending on what their explicit goals are, but I guess big picture, I would say their role is to uh, guide interest rates in some way, shape, or form, um, short-term interest rates, that will hopefully benefit the economy in some way. And that, that once you go deeper than that, that's when you start to get into some of the differences between the central banks. Some of them focus on uh, minimizing unemployment, uh, as well as making sure that inflation uh, stays at a reasonable level. Others focus on other variables, but in general, they're all doing this because their goal is to help the economy move in a way that is more, call it palatable to. Uh, yeah. And they basically like, my understanding is they can, they issue, do they issue the treasury bonds? Is that what they do? 
the well no so so the treasury no. issues treasury debt um and the federal reserve or well many other central banks what they often do is they will as as a as the manner in which it's the they implement, bank of the country like i guess yeah what is a yeah, central it's, bank it's, in, a, in a way yes it's it's the bank of the country it regulates uh interest rates and it does that in a lot of different ways depending on which central bank you're talking about but yes they they regulate or manage interest rates short-term interest rates and interest rate meaning like if i give money to the u.s government how much am i money gonna get or just the market interest rate the market if, rate of the you, u.s listen if you're if you're giving money to the uh to the u.s government we should have a separate conversation after this podcast because that, that that's <laughs> fascinating to me i'd love to learn more about that uh all right. No, it, um, it basically what it what it regulates more than anything else is um, interest rates that banks will let's say charge each other uh, for short term loans. So some banks uh, at any point in time might find that they have more money than they need at that point in time, and so for them they might think to themselves, "Well, if I have more than I need at the moment." Uh, I might consider lending it to somebody, right? Because I can either keep it, even though I don't really need it for the time being, or I can lend it to someone right. and make, make some money on it. it. So, um, and then you have, on, on, <laughs> yes. And then on the other side, you might have some banks that are in need of money at that very moment. Um, and so that, you know, the, the, the central bank will, um, manage or regulate the, the mm. rates that banks could be trying. And this is so important. I guess this is such an important thing in the whole market dynamics that we, they have a whole institution managing this. They're, um, I would say that they are probably among the most um, important players, so to speak, uh, in the markets or for the markets, actually. And the reason it's easy to be able to tell that is anytime there is a major uh, Federal Reserve meeting coming up or speech coming up, um, anyone who is a trader or investor of any kind, it doesn't even matter what asset class they focus on, they are very, very likely to spend the hour of time or whatever it may be that that meeting is happening or that speech is being given. They are going to spend that time not continuing to trade or invest, but rather watching a TV to listen to what the- No, absolutely. Yeah. They are impactful. That is the point. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, what I was also asking is that short-term rates are just an important metric, or somehow this is an important factor in the economy, right? That, because how, otherwise, you can't get loans to like finance your new factory to build more, you know, widgets or Pavel clones or whatever. And so, like, if you can't make the money move, if um, your economy holds to a grind. And therefore, these short-term rates are actually very important. That's what I'm trying in, to get to. In in a sense, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, okay. it's it's more. No, no, no. In a sense, yes. It's just uh, the the way it usually works is it's kind of like a it's a process. So um, the thinking is more so that if they make changes to short-term rates, oftentimes those changes will filter through to more longer-term rates. So the Rates can go out, uh, you know, as far as, let's say, at least in the U.S., they can go out as far as 30 years. There are, you know, now countries in the world that, uh, that are issuing a 100-year debt. And so interest rates can go out quite a bit, but the thinking is if you make changes at the short end, they will hopefully filter through 
to the economy, which will eventually impact the rest of the interest rates that farther out. I'm actually starting to issue 125-year Pavel uh, debt notes, uh, the dominated Bitcoin. So if anybody wants to buy some, it's a good investment. You know, the, so the, the difficulty you might run into, though, is that when, when governments issue debt for any number of years, um, it's usually with the understanding that that government will probably be in existence for... It's a high-risk, high-reward situation. Like, I'm imagining a whole virtual world that Pablo builds one day. Oh, okay. Well, so yeah, if, you, if you're going to be, you know, living forever, then that's a different story. I guess yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. you haven't told me about that in our private conversations, but you know, if, if that's the case, again, we have something to talk about after the podcast. I didn't no, know. I think so. I quick mention, like, I don't know. I, I, I was thinking it could happen. I don't know if you know, like Ray Kurzweil, he's like, basically Ray Kurzweil says, ah, blah, blah, exponential growth of technology, crazy shit is coming. Um, to a point where we'll have the singularity, where we'll have like the actual artificial intelligence, and then that thing is going to be so smart that it'll just do fix all our problems, all diseases solved. Here's a virtual world you can go live in, whatever. You know, I don't think it's inside of me. There's obviously hope because I think it'd be super cool, um, but as also probably logically think it's unlikely. Um, but I think there's some chance. So there's some chance, you know, people are listening out there believing that these T-bills by Pavel are really pretty cheap. Good deal. Buy some. Anyway. Well, I was, I was going to say it's, it's for the investors, I guess, that are listening <laughs> out there. Just be aware that you should be comfortable <laughs> with this debt that Pavel is ish- issuing because he is going to live at least for another 125 years. And it's, that's it. I mean... Yeah, so you gotta start. You gotta start early. People that bought I'm, Amazon. I'm gonna, I'm back gonna in start. The day. I'm gonna start pricing the debt and and try to figure out how uh, how we can sell it. This uh, is a good business idea. Uh, business is good. Um, so we got this like mess of a coronavirus going on right now. You know, current events. Let's date ourselves. So this is I don't know end of February here, February twenty sixth. Yep. Um. I am, from what I've been reading, and I spent a couple of hours yesterday just because I was curious, it looks like it, it will, I mean, I don't know. I think it will, it, we should not be concerned. Most people can survive the virus. It is likely it will be a global pandemic. I don't think they can contain this thing. Um, the market has shook in the past few days. I think today it, was, it has recovered maybe. I haven't checked in a little bit. But uh what are your thoughts on the whole matter? First of all, do you, you know, do you have any thoughts on what's going to happen? Is this thing like for reals? Is it going to go global pandemic? And then do you think it's really going to slow down the economy? Do you think the Fed can uh, juice it? Like, you know, we just talked about them. So now these guys, should short-term rates are going wherever direction we don't want them to go to. I'm not even sure. These guys can juice it, right? Theoretically. Because I saw a headline today. They're saying, currently we're not juicing anything. Right. Well, so... There, there, there are a lot of uh, moving parts with the virus. Um, I gave a presentation recently where um, I did everything in my power to make it clear at the outset that I am not an infectious disease expert by any means. I don't think I've taken any class even remotely connected to that ever or studied it. But it's one of those things where because that issue is on a lot of investors' minds. I it's guess fun you, to talk about. 
Well, and, and you need to be able to talk about it, at least sort of from an investment perspective. Um, and so the basics are kind of a necessity in terms of what you need to have at your fingertips before you can start to talk about the investment side. So the basics are basically um, that the, so there's something called uh, R0, uh, which is a measure that is constantly changing. And that measure looks at, uh, in simple terms, is the virus continuing to spread or not? And if that metric is above one, then it is continuing to spread. And if it's not, then it's slowly dying out. Um, And so the latest numbers, uh, to be honest, I looked yesterday, I think, and they were between, I believe, one and a half and almost four. And like I said, it fluctuates all the time because there are a lot of variables that go into it. And you can imagine that when you're doing a calculation to, term, to determine if a virus is spreading, that thing is probably going to fluctuate with every second that goes by. But um, the point is, it is in fact still spreading. And the number my buddy of- said that it has a similar estimated RO to the Spanish flu, with a, which is like not a good one. It killed a bunch of people. But it was so a long time ago. Yeah, I don't know offhand what the what it was for the Spanish flu. Um, I trust him. He's a scientist. I, I do know. I do know that the it sits between SARS and MERS, which were the two more recent uh, right, outbreaks. Right, right, right. And so, so it is. Point spread- is, this guy is spreading. It is spreading. Uh, you now have, I believe, more than eighty-one thousand people that are infected globally. Um, but I guess if you can find an upside here, which is difficult to talk about because of course we're talking about something like death potentially, and that's never an upside, but, um, there are in terms of the fatality rate, the fatality rate is not at the level that prior viruses or pandemics have been at. And therefore, at least at the moment, it doesn't seem that it is as concerning. Um, but we are dealing with many, many more infected people than we had previously, and therefore the number that will die will probably be higher as well. But it's one of those when you compare the number of deaths relative to how many infected, you know, that ratio yeah. itself might kind of reduce the concern. So, so basically, I've been summarizing it for everyone as it is definitely still spreading. There will be many more people that will likely get infected, but that is not to make any equally painful comments about the number of people that are going to die from the infection. Those are two very different things. In the sense that, look, every year people get the flu, and there are many, the and, and many, many people die from the flu. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's always difficult to have these conversations because, you know, ultimately you're, you are talking about life and death to an extent and you try to be sort of as objective or scientific about it as you can, but, you know, you keep reminding well, look, I don't, yourself. Yeah, I don't want anyone dying, but, like, this right. is the reality. The viruses, the virus, they're stupid fucking viruses, right? Like, because if the virus, because yeah. the virus that kills us is not a good virus because then it doesn't get to, like, keep going. So, yeah. actually, I was reading that, the more infectious versions, like in the, mm-hmm. in the Spanish flu, they think a theory is like th- there's a sharp drop off at the end of that flu. And the theory is that people that got the one that was pretty bad, 
uh, all died, and, and the so it quickly the virus quickly mutated. But again, we're not epidemiologists; it's just kind of interesting. For, I didn't know they knew so much stuff. They just like they excavate all stuff. They they can obviously do the sequencing now is huge. They can sequence now. Yeah. Um. All right. So this thing is spreading. I. We don't. In, no, in not fact, as many people uh, are dying as of, as of today. Uh, Brazil got a case of it. Yeah. Um, uh, Germany uh, also got a case. So it's it's definitely. I, in fact, I think every continent except Antarctica now has a case. At least yeah. It's, uh, so I don't. I'm worried about. And you see this in China, where because of the quarantine put in place, economic activity is going down. Yep. Uh, significantly. And so what happened? I mean, is that going to spread across the world now? Uh, is it, that something I need to be worried about? It, it is, I mean, it's already spreading. The, the economic activity being pretty much grinding to a halt. Not Zoom. Thing. Zoom doubled in value. Slack also, I think, is up. So people you're, are you're bidding right. on remote. There, there have been many companies that decided um, in, you know, sort of a twisting of fate that uh, they're now going to see how good their working from home <laughs> policies and plans have been uh, because that's you know, what me, a lot I'm a big of them are doing. Quarter. Yeah, so. yeah, there you go. Um, but yes, it's, uh, it is definitely infecting global economies. Um, what could the more, Fed do to counteract this? Can they do anything? I... It, it depends how you define, you know, what, what an accomplishment might be in, in the sense I that the, I wanted the economic activity to keep going and like, woo, just let the engine whirl, baby. Right. So, so in that sense, it's less likely that they could accomplish much. And, and the, and the reason is very straightforward. It's, it's like, you know, if you, if you have, if you have, companies all over the world that are having to shut down their operations either because they are close to where uh, the virus is located and therefore there are going to be no workers going to work anywhere near there and whatever those workers are producing now can't get sold to other companies that might use those parts let's say to make something else and then those companies can't sell those parts to another company that might create a final product. Um, so that, first of all, that's how it kind of, the, the chain reaction happens. Right. And so when you bring the central bank in, it's like, well, if you're talking about an outbreak of a virus, and let's say the central bank says that we're going to make it very easy for companies to uh, borrow money, to kind of keep their operations going, you know, I would almost, stop at that remark and ask a simple question, which is what operations are you going to continue? Are you going to help keep going? Because at the moment there's a virus that's presenting people from even going to work. So what are those operations? Right, exactly. What's, what's the fact going to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, it's, there's a limit to what, what it could accomplish, but I guess the, the one place where it could have an impact is let's say if they, if the markets are performing not so well as the last week or two have shown, uh, then what the central bank can do is engage in expansionary monetary policy, which is a fancy way of just saying print it. And uh, get well in this day and age, you don't really need to print much because so much is digital. 
Oh God, love the digital stuff. But yeah. you know, you can think of it as the digital equivalent of printing. Yeah, so you run maybe, some maybe, code, baby. Well, not even. You probably just add a few zeros on a you know screen somewhere, and you call it's it a crazy. day. Yeah. But they can do that, and what will that do? It'll probably get the markets more excited uh, about the future because eventually economies will recover the supply chains that we were saying, you know, that chain reaction, they will get uh, repaired and business will continue. So what the Fed can do or other central banks is at least not have the markets take a nosedive over what is happening at the moment um, to sort of keep investors at least confident in the outlook. Interesting. Okay. I have a, like I know this is true intuitively, but I also struggle with this. So like, you know, the market is a way to invest. It's a stock market, whatever. And you can buy stocks. You can buy an ETF and, you know, for a long time, as it has existed, for how many hundreds of years, whatever, it has gone up in value. And you have these companies like Amazon, which are valued, Apple, Tesla, valued at incredible amounts. And I'm and over time we've had bubbles, we've had crashes, but overall there's always kind of a you know if you map it over time there's a linear progression or I think it's linear up right whatever you it's growing forever it feels like what what the the market you're saying the market value oh, like oh. it has no it has no it has no maximum even I mean it'll have downturns but then it'll just keep going and so I see that and I'm like is it just gonna go up forever like is that just is that a fact of life that there, it has no limit? And like, how come that's the case? Is it because, and I say to myself, it's technology. So when we invent, invent something new and somehow create better stuff that creates value and, you know, it keeps on going. Right. But well, so um, prices do tend to go up over time and it's not just the market. It's every well, uh, within reason, uh, the price of almost everything. There, there are areas uh, of uh, or industries uh, where um, you don't actually necessarily see uh, see prices just going up. But still, over hundreds of years, it must change with inflation and whatnot, right? Well, let's just say that uh, there have been periods where prices were going up more. Uh, they were going up quicker. Uh, periods when they were going up slower but they're periods, always going period up. well they no, go period. down sometimes but over the long term even there there were periods believe it where prices were more or less flat um for long periods of time um there if you look at uh charts that let's say show um the overall price level let, let's take the us us as an example if you look at uh what prices were doing pre call it i don't know 1900s um there were episodes where prices might go up unexpectedly they might go down unexpectedly but i would say that their trajectory might have been more flat really than up okay and then you get more into the 1900s and you started to see more of the upward trajectory so it and and so my technology thesis kind of works right more technology in those times uh industrial revolution yes so industrial revolution had a huge amount of uh it was an an enormous increase in the output of what was being produced and so that would you know put downward pressure on prices because supply goes up prices will go down but uh the bigger 
I think the bigger element, um, which shouldn't really be that much of a mystery, if you look at the periods that I was just talking about where prices really started to move higher versus times when prices were more or less flatter, you'll notice that those periods had their cutoffs uh, at dates that do seem to have some sort of significance. Um, and they correspond to the previous topic we were talking about, which is central banks. Um, and so when the central bank came into existence uh, in the US, that was again, the early 1900s, uh, that's when you really started to see more of those um, upward trajectories overall, but with these unpleasant downturns that took place along the way. And the reason why I said it's not too much of a mystery is because the way that central banks function is that they, you, know, you, you said, you said print, you said yeah. print, uh, you know, that's not the most, uh, call it uh, economic term, I guess, in a sense, but uh, it's not the most inaccurate way to put it either. Uh, so they'll, uh, they engage in much of their policy, uh, by doing things along those lines. And it's a simple question of, well, if you put more currency into a market, then what, what would you expect to happen, uh, to prices over time as more of that currency moves into the market? Well, people have more of that currency. They can bid up the price of all the different things they buy. So, like I said, those, uh, those two things are not uh, just coincidentally combined in terms of their timing. So they do go up over time, at least for the last hundred plus years, but it was not necessarily always like that. Mm, okay. So then it might not necessarily be always like that either, right? Like, so when I'm looking at the market, I'm like, oh, look, another record. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's going to go, it's just going to keep going up. Mm -hmm. Like, well, it's, it, it is can, long, or I guess you can't tell bull market me now. I mean, it's been the longest bull market at, at this point. I mean, yeah. in terms of economic growth post global financial crisis, it's been the longest uh, expansion. The markets have been going up seemingly nonstop and with no volatility on top of everything else. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, well, there are, I know it's a hard question. It's a hard question because there are a whole slew of, uh, theories about why that might be the case. Um, some of it, I'm sure at least some of it has to do with the fact that the global financial crisis was so negatively impactful and central banks basically made it a, a, about as clear as they possibly could that they would make sure nothing like that would ever happen again. And also that they would make sure that the expansion that would take place after the financial crisis would, would be them. a healthy one and last a long time, so on and so forth. And what that ends up doing is it creates in investors' minds sort of a level of comfort and confidence. And so you end up having an asset class like equities, which, you know, when you consider it relative to all the other asset classes out there. It is historically among the riskiest. Doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in it, but relative to all the other asset classes, it is among the riskiest. You end up with it having very little risk. And it's because of a lot of that psychology that got built in that, you know, central banks will always kind of be there to step in when necessary and uh, make sure that we don't have unpleasant downturns like we did in uh, financial crisis. So that's why you have those great, that, returns, right? great returns with, with very little risk. 
So then 50 years, like in the, in 50 years from now, you think the market's still around and it's, uh, it's higher priced? I mean, it, in 50 years, probably. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if you were going to tell, ask me about the next few years, I, that would be, I would have less confidence about that. Yeah. I'm looking at long term, like, you know, what happened? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a fair bet. I mean, the, it's a fair the way, bet. but it's still a bet. It's not a for sure thing, really. It, it, nothing's for sure in this world. I Besides mean, death and taxes. There you go. There you go. The taxes is another interesting topic. But anyway, if we have time, we can get to that later. But um, yeah, it, there's a good chance that if we're talking about a 50 year time frame, sure, it, that uh, that could uh, very well be the case. But then again. You know, then you got to start factoring things like how long can countries start uh, continue to keep uh, accumulating all the debt that they've been accumulating? Will there eventually be some kind of a day of reckoning? Probably not anytime soon, especially if you're a country like the U.S. when the globe loves to hold your debt and has a lot of confidence in the fact that that debt will be repaid. But other countries, maybe they're time horizon for something like that is sooner who knows i but i wouldn't i don't see that as kind of a near-term risk that's somewhere down the line that's what i was saying when we talk about 50 years on the one hand you want to say well 50 years i'm sure the market will be higher but then it's like well in 50 years considering how long we've been accumulating as much debt as we have who knows how that's going to play out somewhere close to that 50-year mark who i you know hard to guess that far out I'll leave that up to maybe people like Ray that you were mentioning earlier. Ray Kurtzville, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe he has a theory on that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I I was thinking about like I don't I didn't grow up with a culture of investing. Like I grew up with, I well, grew up with a did I. <laughs> my culture was cash under the mattress, like almost literally, you know, like and um and to be fair, my parents, they live in the Soviet Union, right? They saw just clear, their savings you, evaporate. You make so. it, I was, well, I was going to say, you're making it sound like you grew up in the, during the Great Depression. So maybe for <laughs> listeners that don't know you, just to clarify, <laughs> that's not uh, what you're saying. No, but in the 90s, like my grandparents, whatever, they had like money in Zbedebank, which is like the central bank of Russia. And like when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Soviet Union, it, it all got messed up basically. And then, so, and also we are immigrants. So when we, I mean, immigrants are different, but when we came here, we really didn't come here with much. So it felt like, oh, my parents were saving all this money. My grandparents were, and then oop, they're in zero mode. And also my grandparents, I mean, they themselves had to move during World War II. So I feel like it was a lot of like starting over for them, which I think impacted how they viewed the world, mm -hmm. um, which is like cash in hand is the best thing you can have, period. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of how I grew up. And then over time, I started to learn more about the markets. And I mean, you know, if, if someone is listening that is young, yeah, do all the things that everybody tells you to do. 401k, whatever, max it all out. Like just, and even just put money into like a, you know, a managed whatever, just a portfolio of stocks over time. Like, well, we, yeah, we can, we can talk about that part too. Um, we, yeah. So what do you have there, a suggestion are, are, for people that are young, that have a little cash? Like where should they throw it? The, well, there, there are a lot of, I mean, the idea of investing it is a good idea. Uh, the problem is that there are more ways than anybody could possibly count about how to invest it. Um, right. so Obviously, my, the Pavel 
T-bills are the best, but go ahead. Yes. No, no. Putting, putting that fantastic investment aside, which we haven't priced yet. I mean, we'll, we'll price it. We'll figure out how good it is, but um, putting that one aside there, my, my background at least was um, among other things, building what we called strategic portfolios, which Thank means- you. Thank you. So yeah, you finished college with a degree in economics. Then you went yeah. to work at, uh, was it city? I worked at City for a few years um, at uh, at the private bank, and um, it was in the realm of wealth management. Our client base was ultra high net worth clients, and okay. so my role was focused on the investment side of these clients' uh, wealth. So it was how to invest it, uh, how much to put in different asset classes, um, which investment managers do we want to use for the different asset classes that we will invest the client's money into portfolio but management is that what it's called in in a sense in a sense and and the the biggest and most important takeaway is that asset allocation which is fancy way of saying how much are you putting into different types of investments so what percentage into a what percentage into b and so on and so forth Asset allocation is probably the most critical decision that an investor can make. Um, and I say that because... When you say asset, do you mean like asset type or do you mean specific stocks? Uh, asset type. So okay. so let's... Uh, and actually, I was kind of going in that direction. So it's good you brought that up. So um, let's just say... I, let's keep it simple. Let's say there are stocks and bonds in the world. So an asset allocation might be, and this is just for example purposes, let's say 50% uh, stocks and 50% sure. bonds. But then of course you get into the details of that and you can start talking about, well, what does the stock part, uh, that 50%, what does the stock part look like? Is it a hundred stocks? If it is, am I going to buy them all in equal amounts? Am I not going to buy them all in equal amounts? Or maybe it's 200 stocks, or maybe it's 50. Either way, those stocks that you're buying, maybe in different amounts or not, can still make up 50% of the overall in the, uh, portfolio. So that's why I was saying that the big picture decision, whether it's 50% or 60 or 20, that's really going to have the most impact. And the reason why is because if you think about it this way, it's, uh, you know, often extreme examples kind of help prove a point, and so I'm going to do that, which is, uh, let's say leading up to the global financial crisis, you had a 100% stock portfolio, and that stock portfolio was made up of one investment manager that you hired that has a fantastic track record investing in stocks. He's always been able to outperform the market, so on and so forth. That to a large extent only matters so much if and when stocks are going to be down 40%, 50%, 30%, whatever the case may be, uh -huh. right? So maybe instead of being down 40%, like call it the average manager, you're going to be down 38, right? Because that manager is so good in managing equities. Well, did he help? Absolutely. You were down 38, not 40. But you know, you take a step back and you think to yourself, wait a minute, but my my options here seem to be just down 40% or down 38, which is not really that fun for anyone, no matter what. So yeah. that's why I'm saying if instead of that 100% in stocks, maybe it was 
And again, just as an example, maybe if it was 10% in stocks, well, that leaves the other 90% of your portfolio to maybe not be down 30, 40, or 50%. And then whatever impact that great manager had on the 10% part of your portfolio could have helped a little bit, but the other 90% would have mattered much more in the sense that it was not invested in stocks, which fell 30, 40, or 50%. So that makes a lot of sense, but, and I assume that, you know, yeah, there's a bunch of theory on how to do it. And like, you can go to professionals, but if I'm just starting out and I just have a little cash, I got my first job. I mean, do, is that what you suggest? Kind of figure out off the top, like where, where you want your allocation to be? Yeah. The, the, I would say the, the biggest uh, and most important thing first would be determine the proper asset allocation. Um, and the good news is that there are many, many different wealth managers at many financial institutions that have access to um, sort of advanced tools that will create a portfolio with the... What about right? like the wealth front, like AI? I don't want right. to do well, it. Yeah, so, so that, that was going to be example two. Example one, uh, just because it's the traditional approach, um, is you work oh, with wow. a financial advisor and they can build a portfolio for you that has the right asset allocation, a strategic one, usually at the outset. That's what I was talking about before. Strategic, by the way, just means long-term. Think of it as um, the foundation for a house, right? You, you first create the foundation for a house. Once the house gets built after the foundations are built, you can decorate it a million different ways. Uh, it'll be totally different from your neighbors, whatever the case may be. But the most important part is the foundation so the whole thing doesn't fall apart. I want to be identical to my neighbors. Uh, I don't know, Pablo. <laughs> were, were you always one to, I don't know, kind of mirror your No, that's not true. I am always, I, in I fact, I, you were unique. I, I, I like unique. being unique. You're right. You're right. All right. Whatever. Fine. Yeah. But I, what I was thinking is if it's identical, then I can like play weird like pranks and like they come into my house and think it's their house, but it's actually my house. Oh, and then I come into their house and eat their cookies and leave. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but then, but then no, no, but then you got to make sure that you're going to eat all the cookies and that you don't have any cookies in your house so that the houses still stay the same. You got to have your cookies and they don't see any difference. In I would, I, you know house. what I would do? Oh, this is brilliant. I would leave an empty bag in my house. So they're like, Oh, Huh. I thought I had cookies. He must have eaten his own cookies. <laughs> All right. You know, the other thing you can do, if you felt bad about it, you could just give them some of those Pavel bonds that you wanted to issue, the 125-year ones, and uh, and they'll be fine because those things are going to be worth a fortune. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I have neighbors now. Well, leave some of the bonds. <laughs> but I still got to price them. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. What, so, yeah, you yeah, build so a anyway, foundation. So, That's right, the so most important found, part. Yeah, you build a foundation. And the thinking there is basically if your foundation is a good one, then whatever tactical changes you want to make. And so that means, so strategic was the long term, the baseline, the starting point. Tactical changes means, okay, let's say I have this asset allocation where stocks are, whatever, I'm making it up, let's say 20%. And all of a sudden something happens in the world where you think to yourself, okay, um, I think that stocks are going to do better than usual in the coming years. And I want to take that from 20 to 25. And 
the reason why it's better to start with a strategic allocation and then make those tactical changes, the tactical, by the way, is going from the 20 to the 25. Uh-huh. Um, the reason why it's better to do it that way is because if your starting point was the proper starting point for the long run, then the tactical changes you make, if you end up being wrong, they are not going to blow up your portfolio because you made the tactical changes with a starting point of a good foundation, a good baseline. But that would be very different if maybe you didn't have the best starting point or baseline, and maybe stocks were 95% of your portfolio, which is, let's say, as a starting point, not the best for a particular person. Uh, then if you go from 95 to 100, well, first of all, the 95% might blow up your portfolio for all I know. But then if you take it up to 100 and make that tactical decision with a not so good starting point, that's just going to compound the problem even more. Mm. And so that's why that starting point is so important. You start with a good, you start in a good place, you make tactical changes, and hopefully they'll add a bit to your portfolio if you're right. They're definitely not going to blow up your portfolio if they're wrong. And that's why strategic allocation. It's good advice. I mean, I got to say, hard for me to follow. I, I, I can hear your advice and I, I can see that it's like correct. Well, that's, that's why those analogies are, are useful. You no, just, not, not to follow like in terms of like, no, I understand you. I'm just like, yeah. I just, oh, you mean like, well, you don't want to, you say the analogy is like, Pablo, you don't want to build a house without a foundation, right? right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically it. It's like if you don't build it without a foundation and you decorate it in the most beautiful way, the decorations being those tactical decisions. And then a hurricane comes through and just fucks it up. It doesn't matter because you had no foundation. Yeah, but it's going to be a fucking sweet, sorry. It's going to be a sweet house, like all this cool stuff. Like that's what it feels like. I have a little money. Let me buy myself a nice chandelier right away. It's going to be a nice chandelier. I never took you as a chandelier kind of guy. but I like swinging from it. Ah, well, okay, that, that's a different... I see, I thought you might use it for, you know, the purpose that 99% of people use it for, but yeah, I guess there's always a different one every What day. did you... So this was at Citibank, and then... So wait, by the way, that was option one. Option two is, of course, a lot of these, um, these new apps that are coming out, which offer you a lot of the same services. But they also let you, like, put money in and make an asset allocation. Right, but, but in, in I, making... All my life, I've been only investing in stocks, nothing else. Which, which is, which is fine. I mean, my, my, my biggest concern, I guess, when, when talking to investors is make sure that they understand the risks involved in what they're doing. If, if somebody is an investor who wants to invest only in stocks and that's always a hundred percent of the portfolio and they thoroughly understand that in a situation like 2008, that 100% of the portfolio might mean that they lose 40 plus percent of what was in it. And they are genuinely, well, not fine in the sense that they're happy with it. But they but understand that risk. Yeah. Then, fair. then, you know, if that's their preference. Oh, you know, risk is so hard to comprehend just as a human, like far out, like risk like that. Yeah, it's Very much so. Very much. Which so. is why I guess you have a whole industry that exists that does, you know, what you were doing that, back then. That tries to manage risk. That, that is the idea. Uh, what at Goldman? You, then you went to Goldman, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, did you do something? You did something a little different there. Still in the realm, but something different. So the the emphasis probably shifted. Well, to to use my own um, kind of nerdy terminology from a few minutes ago, the my asset allocation in terms of what I was spending my time doing uh-huh. shifted. Uh, and but, our time uh, is our most valuable asset. Amen. That is very true. 
Um, so yes, it shifted, but a lot of the things that I was focused on at City were similar at Goldman. It's just maybe I spent more time on some of them and less time on others. So I spent more time, um, well, I guess the lack of a better way to put it, uh, analyzing the global economy, which way are uh, different countries headed and how that translates into uh, what we like to call actionable investment ideas. Uh, so it was more on the investment side, what are good areas to invest in, maybe what are areas that are not so great to invest in, and that portfolio building component that I probably spend more time doing at City, I spent less time doing at Goldman, but it, it's sort of hard to ever disconnect the two. Right. Um, you can imagine in a conversation if you tell somebody, well, you know, I think... Uh, whatever, pick your favorite region of the world. I think that's a great place to invest. Inevitably, someone's going to ask you, okay, well, how much of my portfolio should I dedicate to that? And once you tell me that, where should I take money from in the other parts of my portfolio to put into that part that I like? So those areas are always intertwined, but I definitely spend more time on the areas to invest or be favorable on uh, than I did on the kind of nitty gritty of, uh, of portfolio allocation. And the, which I guess I understand how they're interrelated. Do you like the stuff that's like the global, this is how things are moving overall strategy yes. more? Yes. Um, mostly because that's the type of stuff that changes on a second by second basis. Um, you know, there, there's always something new, fresh, and exciting taking place in the world that can all of a sudden make new, fresh, and exciting investments pop up. And I just enjoy that kind of fast-paced changing environment more than anything else. Um, whereas portfolio construction, not to say that it's, I, I would say it's, for me, a little bit less interesting, but definitely extremely important still. Like, no matter what my interest level in it might be, it is absolutely critical. Right. Uh, because if I'm favorable on some region of the world, that should absolutely not imply to anyone that, oh, that means sell everything you own, no matter what it is and where it's uh, invested. Right, of course. And just right? put it into my idea. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, well, what I remember is you came over to um, the Ritz Carlton in OC, and me and my buddy Minsky, episode number one guy. We drove, we drove up and uh, hung out with you a little bit. And you were, do, you were doing some kind of speech, you know, exactly yep. what you described. This is, you know, the tractors in China are doing really well. You know, Bulgaria's got to go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure that those were the recommendations I, I was giving. Have you ever recommended potatoes? Like potatoes, you can buy potato futures, right? I, I recommend uh, potatoes for any Russian restaurant that somebody <laughs> goes to. You will love them. I uh, love potato. And so and now you moved on from Goldman and you're kind of doing, you know, Zeller advisory. So you're kind of sharing that expertise in, with the world directly. Yep. Yep. Um, so the, the thinking there was, it, and actually it ties very much to what we were just talking about in the sense that um, the, uh, the portfolio allocation, the asset allocation part, um, you know, I have downed, uh, you know, we, we kind of know what the optimal portfolios are, how they should be allocated at that foundational strategic level. And where I feel like my value add can be from there 
is um, I've always, and this is going back to when I started reading about economics and investing on my own back in high school, um, I've always had kind of a different way of analyzing what areas of the market might be more attractive. Contrarian? Would you call yourself a contrarian? Is that a bad bad word? No, no, it's it's not a bad word. Um, I would say that there are times when my views might be the opposite of others' views, but it's it's not because I'm just fundamentally at heart a contrarian, but it might be simply because I analyze things differently. I mean, that, that's the part that I really try to emphasize. I look at investments in a very different way, at least as far as I can tell from almost every, I mean, I'm not going to say every single other institution out there because I don't know every single one of them, but I analyze things I mean, is that your secret sauce or can you tell, like, what does that no, mean? Well, that's, no, I mean, that's a lot of the secret sauce, but it, the, in big picture terms, it, it takes into account... Um, certain policy decisions that are made by all the different institutions in all the different countries around the world and how those policy decisions might or might not impact markets. Um, quite a bit of the areas that, uh, that we look at are uh, central banks and their policy decisions um, and how those will, well, impact the markets. So there that sounds will hard. Be- That's like a lot of variables. Uh, there are, there are a bunch of variables. There are probably, you know, a lot, a lot of quantitative work that has to go into it to figure out, um, what is exactly the connection between policy actions and how markets do and, and how economies do first and foremost. But ultimately you come to find that, wow, there, there does actually seem to be quite a relationship between policy actions and, uh, and how economies and markets perform after so it's sort of like that might be thought of as the tactical component uh, to what I do, but the the kind of long-term starting point is very similar, I would argue, than probably many the the lots of other institutions might have. But mm. you know, where you can add a little bit more of the returns to your portfolio would be the tactical part from that different approach we take. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I, I always appreciate your commentary on, on the stuff as well. Do you share that? Do, do you get like a newsletter or anything? Uh, the newsletter is in the works. At the, at the moment, it's kind of, um, we've been doing some sort of custom work, looking at different markets, um, trying to gauge the marketplace on what they're more or less interested in. Um, but the, the, the models and so on and so forth, I mean, those are sort of intact and, and built and exist. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of... Do you give, like, friends a discount? Uh, it depends. Offline? I mean, if, if those friends are going to pay me in 125-year bonds, then <laughs> I, I probably am willing to offer a discount because they probably don't realize how valuable those bonds are, and I do. Uh, it's a high-risk, high-reward kind of situation. All right, that's cool. That's okay. I'll take it. I, very interesting. Okay. And a lot of my content, I uh, at least up until now, sort of to gauge the interest out there and to build a following is I pretty much posted on LinkedIn and Twitter. Did you have a LinkedIn that's juiced? I don't understand how you have such a juiced LinkedIn. You, uh, you, I don't know. How, how do you define juiced? Or maybe I, I'm a, I shouldn't have asked, but let's hear it. Uh, I'm a data guy, right? So like, if I look up your... Uh, 
No, you're not a data guy. You're data Pavel. I'm data Pavel, baby. I don't know. I let's see. There was somewhere you could see how many followers or something you got. You have nine thousand nine hundred and fifty-seven followers. Oh, That's almost ten k. I you mean, for now making that very public. All right, cool. <laughs> no, I can't. There's something. I mean, wrong. it's fucking. I'm, it's public kidding. information. I, I know. I'm. But if I look at like mine, it's probably like 600. So that's almost 20 times. So I don't know how you got it so juiced. Maybe I have more data than you do. Yeah. I guess you have more, you're, you've been active more, you've been doing things more. I've definitely been quite active on, uh, on LinkedIn. But again, remember, it's for the purpose of trying to gauge interest and build a following. That's, that's sort of how I'm, how I'm doing it. You build the following and then you, know, you start to release some of the more premium level services that that can be offered and you know hopefully you translate some of those followers into subscribers and clients and things of that sort oh yeah, yeah. I, I it it does work and as you know it's just a consistency game just mm-hmm. like one of the things that i'm kind of i mean i beat myself up doesn't matter but like you know my my the podcast kind of took a little sputtering and now we're back in at you know full force, guns are blazing. But that's what you have to do. You have to, you just have to be consistent. And, and you know that's life. Life gets, you know, you can get busy with other things. Not me because I'm just uh, still on my sabbatical. But um, you, ha- you have to hit people with something many many times over before it sinks in and they really internalize it. And I think that that probably is underappreciated in the marketplace. So I think you're totally right. You, you have to be active and they need to see you over and over. I mean, this, you know, this is why companies pay for, pay for advertising and things like that. And you see it all over the place. Then it gets buried in your brain somewhere. And all of a sudden you realize you need X, Y, Z. And you remember, oh, yeah, you know, I saw that company or that ad 7,000 times and it's not an annoyance because now you know exactly where you can go to get that thing that you need. Yeah, the Hitachi Magic Wand keeps hitting me with ads. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I mean, sore back, sore back. Um, back when's your rough. <laughs> we're getting old. What can I say? When's your, when's your heart out? I'm sorry? When's your heart out? my heart out yeah like when do you have to finish recording and have to pick up your daughter oh <laughs> hard out. i thought you said heart out okay um no i uh at least for the time being i'm uh, i'm totally fine you good for another hour or whatever yeah my my daughter is uh she's still in school um becoming very educated at four years old so uh because yeah, <laughs> i want to yeah i want to cover a couple more things i just yeah, want to make sure i got sure. more time here so a brand you just mentioned it um just curious your thoughts like i think brand and i listen to some guys and they basically say like brand is like it, it's it's a secret it's a secret sauce like you have to be authentic to the world you have to be you and that is going to you know creating a brand is super important in today's age where every, everybody's interconnected there's reviews everywhere you know you 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 can like point being for a financial advisor there is robo advisors there's hundreds of companies how do you stand out well by having a unique brand which you know i, I think i i'm 
grasping what that is. Same I'm, thing I'm for glad, myself. I'm glad I didn't interrupt you probably 30 seconds ago because I was going to say you need to stick one word in front of brand and that word is unique, but you just said it. So that's it. And, and one way to be unique is just to be, to be like uniquely yourself, like be authentic. And like, if you're yourself, then you'll be unique because no one is really like yourself. Now, if you try mm-hmm. to hide yourself and become the general guy, then that's not going to work. But, that, uh, but that's also, that's also if you are the brand, it, you can also find a way to make the brand unique. I mean, granted you would be thinking of it. So I guess in a sense that ties you to it, but you don't have to make the brand about yourself. It doesn't have to be you, you mean. Right, yeah. Just make sure that your brand and what it stands for is unique. And there are plenty of, you know, ways to do it. Plenty of companies have done it. There, Who knows how many companies in every industry that at the end of the day, their product might be fairly similar, but because of their branding differences, they might cater to different parts of the population. And for that reason, they might all be successful, but for very different reasons. And they have very different customers. And what about the individual brand? Do you think that's important today's, you know, society, age, whatever? Uh, so it not is, just the company, but really like yep. you are the brand. Yeah. So it doesn't have it, to be that way. Is it changing uh, towards that? Well, are you, are you asking more in the sense of if you, you are your company or are you asking just general, how important is it that I work on my brand? Just big picture. Yeah. How important is it, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, are we going to see changes where like everyone is going to have their own website and everybody's going to look and see, okay. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm asking kind of a very, just, I'm just thinking out loud really like, you know, Joe Rogan's got a pretty strong brand. Um, well, but that's because he is also, you know, the, the, he Rogan. is the company. The company is him. But that, that's I would argue. You don't think it has to be that way? I think you're saying no, you can no, build a company. Not. Yeah, the, I mean, Coca Cola. I mean, is that tied to any particular individual? No. The only one to me is like Warren Buffett because he made a lot of money at one day a long time ago but yeah well, but I, I, your point is taken right so but but that doesn't mean that individual branding is not important i think individual branding is critical but for a different reason individual branding is really important for general career purposes so you know if, if you're someone who works at a big company um you need to make sure that you're known and you're known for the right reasons and a lot of that is encompassed in your brand so individual branding is critical no matter what. It's just a matter of from there, are you now needing to think through how do I brand the company, which is essentially me, uh, or not? Uh, it's, but the first part, the individual branding is really important no matter what. Just for a different reason. Interesting. You know, that's a good way to put it. Like you're working for a big company. I work for a big company, Deutsche Bank, for example. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Blue Tree too, sizable, not, not big, but... I, I mean, I'm very good. I'm about myth, you know, myth and legend. So to me, brand is myth and legend. And I was able to build that up, you know, dash a Russian, mad scientist, you know, nerdy, I mean, computer genius, whatever. Let's not toss those words around so lightly. Um, and that's, and that, and that's kind of cooked up a brand that was really internally facing. Like people knew, oh, he's a, he's a fun guy to go karaoke with. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Powell will play a game of foosball and have a beer with you. That's a brand. Out. So, like, you're always building that. Now we're just kind of putting some of these words together, like brand, 
it's really just your reputation and your image internally. And now you have the opportunity to kind of spread that in the world. And I believe that you should spread it in the world as much as you can, because I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, though I don't think you'd have to. And I, and that's, and I think it's changing towards that. I think all these TikToks and everything else, the next generation, they're going to be more and more, uh, self brand conscious and more and more exposing themselves, not just in their company, but to the world, to the, that's my, that's my, well, as, as they, as they should, as they should. And, and a lot of it comes down to, um, building a, not just a brand, but well, they go together, uh, building a story too. I mean, a story of who you are, how you got to where you are, what you can do. Um, that's really important for branding as well, just yeah. because people love stories. Um, they're it's the only way we want to be like talk to tell me a story. Everything else is bullshit. Right. Right. I mean, even, even when you're giving presentations, I mean, I can assure you when, when I was speaking in, in front of, you know, audiences with hundreds of people, you, you got to somehow find a way to keep their attention. And one of the best ways to find a way to keep their attention is to make sure that you create a narrative and whatever you're talking about that in many ways is a story. It flows, it has, you know, all the elements, a plot almost right. <laughs> just like a story does. And that's what keeps audiences captivated. So I, I forgot to mention this in your intro. You're probably one of the most responsible people for me becoming a better writer, I think, because you used to edit like a ton of my essays. Cause when I started at Columbia, you know, Columbia reading a podcast episode too, we, I, I mean, I spoke English decent, but I definitely had to, my writing sucked and like it had to improve over time. Now I'm like, I'm a really fantastic writer. Um, and you always edited my essays, which I think really helped eventually for me to become a better writer. Um, you kind I think of got you're, under, you're, you're overselling me and underselling you. Uh, th there's only so much I could have contributed to you becoming a better writer. Editing your essays, maybe they helped a little. But. It got me through classes though. Okay, maybe, maybe, but uh, I think all the things you might have accomplished in in the years that followed, I, I think plenty of that fell on you. And, and right, and, 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 I, and you I always had. told me like, oh, your ideas are clearly expressed. I mean, that that yeah. that was true. You always kind of like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I always said, you know, when I'm doing my new my Seinfeld show, and I don't know why people don't do this. Like when Seinfeld was created he took like a bunch of people who weren't real like comedy writers, TV writers. And that's how they made their first couple of seasons. So I think including you, me, you know, a couple of other folks that could be a real interesting writing team. Um, I don't know how I got on that tangent, but uh, well, you, you need, well, we were, I was talking about the importance of a story and narrative. Yeah. That's right. Right. Presentations. You, you'd yeah. be, I think you'd be a good sitcom writer. So that's, that's in 10 years or something. So get ready for that. All right. All right. Um, we took a class together, didn't we? Is it just one? No, we didn't take what class? We didn't take uh, any We took classes. one class together. The religion class, theory of myth or whatever. And what? then, in, at, you know, we have to go to Barnard. I'll go once in a while with you. Oh, it, oh, wow. I, I, now I do remember. Wow. I remember that, that all I remember is that that class was so packed that I think most of the time I had to sit on the floor in the back of the room. That's what I remember. I barely went and it was like kind of a weird class, but uh, got through it. I think that was the only class we ever took together. I remember walking with you once in a while. Yeah, I th that probably was the only one. Because yeah. you took Russian, but Russian was different. Yep. 
And, and I think it was more applicable to me than to you. <laughs> that was our trade-off. I would help with Russian. You would help right. pro- proofreading my essays. That's right. <laughs> What's... Uh, I'm, in, I'm introducing this new segment for the Columbia Reunion show. It's uh, one... And I'm sorry I didn't give you any warning. Um, can you give me your top meal at Columbia? Something that you, know, you want to recommend to people new listeners, old listeners, if, if people are in New York, they want to check it out. I, well, I, well, oh, you mean like at Columbia? At Columbia, so like in the neighborhood, right? So, you know, when I think Columbia... <laughs> oh, but you don't, you don't mean on campus. I mean, it can be if you really feel passionate about something. I, 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 I kind of do, and that's why I'm surprised you you might not even know what I'm going to say. Are you serious? You don't, you don't remember uh, what was in the basement of John Jay? I remember, yeah. All right. Well, how did you not know that would be the answer? Come on. So in the base, actually, maybe I should have checked if they even still have this because we are talking about a long time ago, but uh, I'm on it. Yeah. In the basement of John Jay, there was uh, a place called JJ's, right? It's JJ's. You got it. Yeah. JJ's. I remember the name. JJ's place is the casual and comfortable weekend and late night destination featuring Angus burgers. It's still there, baby. Yep. Um, I think that there were many evenings when I was living on mozzarella sticks and chicken fingers. Oh, mozzarella sticks. Which I still love to this day. But oh, no, I don't, I don't go to JJ's to get them. That's for sure. And they were open late. and um, That was the that, best part. That was the they best part. Late. You go there at 2 a.m. Um, just greasy, greasy food. That's that that You love that place, huh? I absolutely love that place. What what better thing to combine with your late night studies than to be eating mozzarella sticks and chicken fingers? I'm going to I'm going to say one of my favorite things and I have a lot but uh I I love that spicy special. Oh yes. That's another yep. one. One on Ninth Street Deli, I believe, just over there on Amsterdam, right? Um go ahead check it out. Definitely get the spicy special. Tell them Pablo sent you. Let's see how many spicy specials we can promote. At the, Delicious at this, sandwich. At this point, I bet you they call it the Pavel sandwich. No, I, I wish. I wish. <laughs> no, I, I'm not real. Are you good at being able to like connect with uh, uh, convenience store staff? <laughs> like, I'm, um, so it, you know, it's funny you asked that. I had lunch with a friend yesterday, and we went to um, a restaurant around uh, in the area here. And I was actually telling him that the first, I I probably was there very early when they opened up and the owner happened to be there at the time. And we had a, at least a 30 minute conversation that first time, if not longer. And ever since, even though I don't go nearly as often as I used to, not even close, he still somehow immediately remembers me, says, hi, Alan. And, you know, so I, I do, oddly enough, for such a specific question from you, like, how do you connect with local store owners? Uh, You're good at it. I, I guess the answer is I'm pretty good, and that was coincidental that you asked. Interesting. And, and you like it, right? Because it makes you feel like you're more of in, like, a neighborhooded place. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, it's, it's always great to connect with people for any reason, frankly. But, uh, yeah, you know. What does it take? Like, just being normal and talking to them? Uh, it, uh, well, being normal and talking to them in general, but I think that... Um, it's you. You always have to keep in mind that you should try as much as you can to focus on the other person and less on yourself. So, have questions. 
express interest, um, and they'll naturally kind of return in kind. And so, so it's almost like saying, even if you wanted to talk about yourself as much as you possibly could, the best way to get there is not to actually just talk about yourself as much as you can. It's to express as much interest in the other person as you can, and they will naturally express as much interest in you and that will allow you to and it's normal to do this right because i sometimes feel like it's not like oh why am i gonna ask this like uh, am i weird for asking like where are you from or like how do you like the weather i don't know not not really i mean if you think about it that's so much of what makes up a person's background and when you ask someone about their background that can't you know that can't be a topic that they have no interest in it's their background they probably have more interest in it than a lot of other things. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I like talking about myself when someone shows it. It's, it feels good when someone shows interest in you. Like, of course. We have uh, another segment called the hot tip. You know, hot tips, hot tips, where basically you can give um, any recommendation you'd like to our audience. On anything? On anything. It can be anything. People have said stuff like, uh, KGNU is a great radio station. You can stream on your, you know, Alexa, Google device, or whatever. And uh, and and other seemingly random things, I guess. And other seemingly at. random things. Like okay. This yogurt is very good. Um, I would say that in the very old age I have reached. Um, How old this- are you? Not that old. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was, um, no, the, the advice I would give um, is that when you are so focused and in the mindset of everything career-oriented and things along those lines, you sometimes fall into the unfortunate trap of overlooking much more important things in your life. Um, and that usually falls into the category of the people around you. And so my best advice would be, while career is really important and what direction you want to take things undoubtedly is important, there's probably something a little bit more important and that would be all the people around you. So as the years go on, let's say after, I mean, we're talking about college, this is Columbia series, of course. Um, That's right, baby. As the years go by, that's right. As the years go by, do not uh, lose sight of all those important people around you or have those relationships fizzle because you don't want to wake up one. I can assure you, let's put it this way. You wake up one day when you're old. Um, it's unlikely you're going to be regretting a bunch of career oriented things, but it is very likely you'll be regretting, you know, how come I didn't maintain that relationship with this person or that person or whatever the case may be. Oh man. That'd be my hot tip. Yeah, that's a good hot tip. Why do you think I started this podcast? This uh, is my because, excuse because to like reconnect with all my buddies. Well, and you're smart and excellent at, uh, at asking good questions and getting good. Yeah. Answers. That's uh, you know, a couple of, I want to, I want to riff off that. Like I find that the people around you are super important. And like the other thing is, I'm an introvert. So like there's moments where I'm like, I just need to be locked away by myself and chill. But I mean, that lasts a few hours. Then I'm like, Oh, what, what are my buddies up to? You know, should I be going on a date with this girl, etc. Um, And I, and if you talk to people that are older or you listen to podcasts with people that talk to people that are older, you know, I think they, they would say, yeah, the people around you don't have any regret. Keep the things going. I mean, we're lucky that we've, 
and I've never knew this about college, but I kind of knew it, I guess, on paper. But I, as I get older, I can really feel it. It's when you're out of that pressure cooker environment, it is, it's hard to make those strong connections again. It's extremely hard. It's really hard. And, and, so, and people enter different periods in their life. You, you, you know, you start a family, you, there are a whole slew of things. And those are challenges that are going to be there. But at least if you try your best over time to maintain those relationships and not have any kind of gaps where there was just no contact, then there's less you need to make up when you reconnect. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I was thinking, here's an app idea sideways like i find it difficult so i have this problem that you're describing like maintaining relationships with people that i want to like talk to a lot and and a lot of it is like oh they're busy i'm not gonna bother them or like you know, i'm busy or just like there's there's this tension when you haven't talked for a while to reconnect again like to do it it's like it's a, it takes a little bit of an oomph and then usually if it's if it's a good friend of yours once you get the past the oomph you're golden like initial hump, initial kind of magnetic inertia, whatever you want to call it. And I was thinking like, you know, is there, is there an app that can help you kind of like, and I hate this idea of like CRMing your friends, your, your mm-hmm. personal relationship. Cause it, by doing that, it's, it's almost like you are taking away a na- what's natural about having relationships. But then at the same time, like, you know, I would talk to my buddy Jenny in a long time. You know, he's got a kid, new house, etc. I want to talk to him. Like, why can't I just call him? Why I feel I feel like I just can't. You ever feel that way? Like you just can't just call somebody because. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, it, uh, I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't part of the reason why uh, why I gave the hot tip that I did. Yeah. Um, so the hot tip is go over that. Like, get over yourself. Uh, yeah, that would be one part. The other part is for your app idea. I would argue that considering how sort of digitized and data oriented the world has become for a long time and is continuing to become, that's probably at least partially responsible for, you know, some of the less focus on social things like your connections with others. And so I would argue that even though your idea might sound, you know, you don't want to CRM your friends. It's kind of like, well, beat quote unquote, the, CRMing of everything else in the world at their own game, which is how I would view it. Sounds like a great app idea. If you know, if the rest of the world is killing social connections in a way, then why don't you use that technology to rekindle those connections? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna brew on it. I think there's, I think there's something there, and like it's good when you identify a problem. The solution is always harder, but if Having a problem is the first step. And, and hopefully whatever app or technology you built to do it is going to function better than uh, us getting this podcast started. Man, oh man. I didn't know. I didn't know if it was going to happen, but I'm glad, it, I'm glad we got through it there. Woo. Technology. Like, I'm an IT support guy. Um, I have this device, Elon Musk. You know, he's, a, he's a, kind of a mentor. Like, he doesn't know it yet, but he's really kind of a mentor. Um, he's letting me borrow this uh, experimental teleportation transformation device. And basically what it does is, as, as you're describing... And you, place, and you don't even need to know him to get access to this device? Sounds amazing. Wow. It kind of doesn't make sense if you think about it. Um, no, no, no. We know each other. 
he just thinks of me as an equal, but I'm at, but he's actually my mentor. You see the distinction there? Oh, I, I do. That's amazing. <laughs> so, no, no, we know each other. I mean, again, experimental, very nice stuff. We like Elon. Elon likes us. He's a nice guy. Um, brilliant engineer. Anyways, not the point. The point is I got the liquid. I pop it in. And then we can kind of transport ourselves and our audience um, into a physical place in time. Um, but take us somewhere. Like, tell me where you want to go. I'm going to program it in. Anywhere or anytime to go? Anywhere, Any anytime. But the trick wow. is you're the one that has to describe it. So if you have never been there before, it's not going to work. Oh, if you haven't been there, it's uh, such, uh. well. Then wait, hey, it can't be any time. I mean, if we're talking about a, maybe I wanted to be somewhere a hundred years ago, I wasn't there. Fine, any time, any place where you've been to, where you want to take our audience. Maybe that's a better way to say it because um, it doesn't work. It, it's you. It has to use your um, your memory to do. It. Yeah, genetics and neuron, neurons. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I I probably would take. I would go to Iceland. That's what I would pick. I've, I've Iceland. Always... Oh, dude, I love Iceland. Let's uh, let me program yeah. that in. Reykjavik. Where you yeah. want to go? Yeah, I've I've always um I've always described it to other people. <laughs> other people who um. All right, we're here. Go describe it. Uh, extremely. Freezing cold, no matter how many layers you wear. Oh, let me be clear. Extremely freezing cold if you don't live there, no matter how many layers you wear. But it seems as though anybody who lives there can walk around in like a t-shirt and be perfectly fine. Um, it is the most kind of out of this worldly like location you could ever visit on the face of the earth. Like, I remember when I was there, the only thing I kept thinking left and right was, I feel like I'm in a, on another planet. It just really felt like another planet, especially when you go in the Blue Lagoon and you've never been inside anything like that. You're like, this can't possibly be. What is the Blue Lagoon? Well, it's a it's, uh, natural, hot, pool-like place with a lot of um, clay that magically transforms your skin. Um, it's like a hot you, spring of geothermal heat. That yep. you're that so it's warm. You're swimming in it, even though it's again absolutely freezing cold outside, and it's outdoors. Just to be clear, um, and the clay also seems to be not Earth-like because 24 hours later, if you happen to look at your skin, you will notice that miraculously you've taken a few decades off your life. I don't know how, but <laughs> um, it's incredible. And uh, the only the advice I would give though is if you go. Um, just make sure that you have people that you trust around you so that if, let's just say, by some crazy chance you decide, for example, in the freezing cold to be really close to the bed of a freezing cold river and maybe just see if you can get as close as possible without having anything terrible happen. But instead, something does happen, like your foot goes in. Oh, my God. And you, barely... you must remember that because that happened to you. I do not have a clue what you're talking about. That was purely a hypothetical. Wow. And uh, anyway, so make sure the people around you, you can trust so that hopefully one of them is uh, going to be really quick about uh, getting you out of that uh, river. I mean, it definitely you. wasn't me. Who, who, who would that be? Like, that would be Sid. Yeah, would be Sid. imagine someone more like Sid-like. 
Yeah. <laughs> Who probably lifted me out using his like pinky finger is my guess. That's yeah. That's yeah. What I loved about, yeah, it's like beautifully white and you also get to eat like lambs too. And um, they party till like six in the morning. And if you're lucky, you can catch the uh, Northern lights. Yep. Um, it's a magical place where, you know, when we went, they really liked Americans because their economy was just shot. I think they've recovered now. More yeah. I, I would also encourage people who go not to try the uh, shark. Oh, God. The shark. rotten shark is rotten so shark. bad. That's, yeah. I mean, it, there's a reason, I guess, that's like the recommendation for tourists because nobody who lives there is actually... Tastes like ammo- ammonia. It's right. Weird. Well, but that's because it's been rotting. Um, so yeah, it's like a game that they probably have for a long time loved to play with tourists where they tell them like, oh yeah, the tourists <laughs> who come here, you got to try the rotten shark as if the, the name rotten shark shouldn't give everybody an idea that it's not something you should try, but everybody tries it. And it is probably one of the most disgusting things you will ever try. Yeah. Yeah. You can take a pass on that, but like, if you want to have the experience, just have the experience. Very true. Very true. Um, that's an awesome place to... <laughs> All right, back back to the real world. Um, how old is your daughter Mercer now? She is four. Um, how how is it? Uh, amazing, life changing, uh, and very intimidating. When already at the age of four, you know they start to say things or ask questions that make you think to yourself, "Is." this person already significantly more intelligent than I am, except this person I'm talking about is like four and I'm a little bit older than four. It's things like that. Have you found like a new appreciation for your parents? Uh, you probably off the charts, uh, new appreciation for sure. Um, our family is very, very close. Um, and then my wife's too actually. And so we spend a considerable amount of time together um, and they're extremely helpful. Um, and my daughter absolutely lo- In fact, here, I'll tell you how much she absolutely loves them. One, one of her most uh, asked questions is, and I kid you not, it's, it's even phrased this way. It's, and who is coming over today later? It, because it, it's become so sort of embedded that that's our routine on almost a daily basis that somebody from the family is going to be coming over later that that's the question it's who's coming over later oh that's Um, lovely yeah she loves it absolutely loves it and i mean so yeah that's awesome i mean grandparents they love the grandkids the the brunt of the work is on the parents especially like as it's i guess four is pretty good right because you're past the terrible twos yep and um It's not a baby anymore. Mm -hmm. Is it like on the up and up from now, from here on? Well, uh, it's so far, it's looking that way, I guess. I mean, but but then you know what it is. It's like the challenges never go away. The challenges just change. So, you know, yes, two, three, whatever you're working on, uh, not... um, uh, or let's just say keeping your cool. <laughs> oh my God, dude. You're going to have a daughter that's going to go out dating. Can you imagine that challenge that's coming up? Uh, I don't know about coming up. She's only four. I mean, it's going to happen eventually, probably. Yeah, it is probably going to happen eventually. And the fact that she's incredibly advanced, uh, frighteningly so, means that it's one of those, you know, four going on, I don't know, 18 or 
probably 20, <laughs> 25 in her case or something. My mom keeps saying that the kids these days are like more intelligent somehow. My sister keeps saying that. Like they're like crazy because of all the technology. I mean, it's that's possible. what you kind of saying. Yeah, it, it's Are you guys just possible. saying that because you're just proud of your kids or is that like a real thing? No, no, there, there, there are definitely instances. I mean, I, let's just say that in the area of, um, you know, kids, if, I don't know, if you call, let's say, pulling a prank or not necessarily misbehaving, just pulling a prank or something. I mean, I was not really the best kid and I did plenty of those when I was young. And so I felt like I was thoroughly prepared for that. Um, but what I've come to learn is she often outsmarts me in those things. And it's those moments where I think to myself, is this four-year-old actually so much quicker and sharper than I am? She's only four, but interesting. Yeah, apparently, but maybe yes. you were also sharper when you were four. But you're right. wiser well, now. Other, that's uh, what I was going to tell you is that I'm I'm willing to bet that every generation in time has probably thought to themselves that the younger generation is smarter. I'm pretty sure that's the case. What's what's your like screen stuff? Does she like get to play with the screen? She does, uh, but it is only when eating. Um, and one of the things that uh, I feel better about, whether whether or not I should, I guess, is that she, I don't think screens are that bad. But go ahead. I I don't necessarily think they're that bad either, because the truth is, I mean, I remember as a kid watching TV seemingly around the clock. Of course. And so, okay, so we move from a TV to a small device in your hands, but you're still watching a screen. But nevertheless, um, the fact that she never asks for it when she's not eating, which is, you know, most of the day, uh, makes me feel better. And that's why I said maybe whether it should or it shouldn't, I don't know, but it does make me feel quite a bit better. If she was constantly, you know, asking for the screen and whining about it and so on and so forth, then you start to get worried that they're just like addicted to this device at all costs. But no, interesting. Only when she eats. That's, an that's like a good little hack you got going. I'm not sure how long that's going to last. She's yeah. bilingual, right? Uh, yeah, but even that's starting to grow because they're teaching Spanish in school. So now it's for her, it's Russian, English, and Spanish in school. It's like Spanish as like this whole school is in Spanish? Or they no, teach no, it in Spanish they, class? Yeah, they teach it as uh, an additional language. Yep. Interesting. And do you speak to her mostly in Russian? I I. So I'd say up until up until recent history, I mean, I, I'm not going to pinpoint, I don't know how many months ago, maybe, but up until recent history, it was like, I don't know, 90 plus percent Russian. But now it's definitely shifting to a more even balance um, just because she's picking up English in school so quickly. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I and, think and I, I think bilingual I want to be able to really operate good. at her level. I want to operate at her level. <laughs> that, no, quite honestly, there. I'm not kidding you. So this is one of the intelligence parts that, like, I'll explain to her words or concepts in English that I'm trying to get across, and I don't know them in Russian, um, and she will tell me what it is in Russian, and it's extremely embarrassing. I mean, keep in mind, wow. you're having this conversation with a four year old. Yeah, I mean, your Russian was yeah. always subpar, but that, that's impressive when your four year old could bingo, bingo. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's impressive. Um, I like that. I like. I think bilingual is good for the brain. I think trilingual is good for the brain. I, and I mean, the studies are out there. So, like, I always, I have nieces whose Russian is maybe like a little, even worse than yours. But like, 
They're not doing it. They're not forcing it down. By the way, j- just so we're clear, my Russian went from awful to mediocre precisely because we were only trying to teach her Russian the first few years. No, yeah, so yeah. I'm not. I'm not hardly insulted, but you'd be surprised. <laughs> no, uh, I, how much of my day I speak Russian now. No, I'm. I, I, first of all, yeah, I'm sure your Russian is probably pretty good. At, well, if you're speaking it a lot, then it's pretty good. And um, but only because of her. That's the thing. that's crazy, huh? But that's yeah. good. That's like a good thing. Yeah. Have you ever thought of like, you know, because I am bilingual, I'm always thought, how can I leverage that? Um, and I haven't been able to really figure it out because I don't really want to. I'm kind of afraid of Russia. Like I'm afraid to go there, to work there, to kind of almost. Yeah, but we but we li- we live in a digital world. I don't know. I don't. I don't think yeah. you have to live somewhere else to benefit from speaking the language. You can have clients across the world, and right. if you can talk to them in that language, then I don't know what else do you need. I would. I've been thinking of launching another podcast called Pavel Paruski. Um, you could. You and could. like talk to them about uh, California life. Interesting. And, okay. and, and uh, if you really mix in a lot of the data elements, I bet you'd get quite an audience. Thanks. Um, not, not, you know, not to focus on what um, uh, many Russians uh, came here with a background in, but it's very... <laughs> Math and data. data. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. We got a little engineering background in us. Yeah. If you find a way to mix them all and do it in Russian, there's an idea. I love it. What, um, okay, one more question for you on the kind of raising kids thing. Like, and I, and I know you're pretty active with, I mean, you told me like you're taking her to, I forgot, dance, maybe other, other activities, all this stuff. Well, she goes to three different dance schools. So <laughs> just by probability, it would be almost impossible if I didn't take her to dance. So I don't, I, I have, I've never been, when I was a kid, no one took me anywhere, you know, I was just kind of like left to my own devices. Mm-hmm. And I am, uh, I guess, like, do you think all this stuff matters that much? Do you think it's, I mean, it's probably, I mean, it's obviously good. If she wants to dance and you can think of the dance, like, as a human that's developing to do that, to find a passion for that, to do it with other people socially, that's got to be good for the developing brain, for sure. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know, like, that's, it just, sometimes it feels like, oh, well, we're spending all this energy on these kids that are like, do they need all this stuff? You know, like you said, you know, my, our parents were busy. They're immigrants. They're trying to make a life for themselves. They put us in front of a book or a TV and, and you know, rock and roll. And we turned out okay. So well, it, I guess it depends which one of our parents you ask. But yeah, <laughs> yeah fair enough. But I mean, do you, do you get what I'm trying to get at? Like, yeah, do you yeah, think- yeah. I, I, think, I think that it's, um, it's, it's not, it's not a, necessity it's not a must in the sense of you know awful things are going to happen if you don't get taken to all that it's more like because it's available and it because it is a learning opportunity and all the different learning opportunities depending on which activities you picked there are so many it's a good way to at least condition the concept of lifelong learning and trying new things and dealing with challenges and you know, when things don't turn out so well, it's just, yeah, it's exactly. a lot of those, it's those follow on effects. But, but the flip side though is, and I, I was reading an article recently about this that was basically saying that because everything is so abundantly available now that the kids don't, they don't know what it means to 
find a way to entertain yourself if you don't have something to do at any point in time. And I think that there's probably some truth to that too, in the sense that, you know, that is another part of your brain that should be exercised, which is, okay, I don't have a lot of active or any activities at the moment. Um, let me use some of my creative thinking to come up with a game to play something fun to do or whatever the case may be. And that's interesting. Yeah. You don't, you don't want a lot of the former stuff, meaning all the activities to kind of totally eclipse the stuff like just be creative and think of something to do when you don't necessarily have somewhere to go. That's interesting. That, yeah, yeah, you have such a rigorous schedule that right. of activities that you you don't ever have time to sit there and use your imagination to play right. a game of whatever. Yeah. That's interesting. So you try to find a balance, obviously. Well, trying, trying. You know, it's uh, it's definitely not, not perfect. And with all the different activities that, that are out there in the world and things that you know, your child might want to do. It's, it's hard to say no or anything like that. And you want them to try all these different things, but I guess it's one of those, at least if you keep it in mind and you at least try to think about it occasionally and maybe put it into practice occasionally, it's better than if you didn't keep it in mind and didn't do any of those occasional things. Interesting. You know, it's like, it's like awareness is step one. (laughs) That's the point. Always. Right. Yeah. My great niece, she, um, she, I think she's about three years old now. And uh, she, I think my sister, her grandma, obviously she has multiple grandmas. I think my my sister, her grandma is her favorite grandparent. Mm-hmm. My sister relishes in that. Does does Mercer have a favorite grandparent? Um, I, is I that, a, or are we going to get killed for just no, bringing up no, this topic? No, no, the, no. The, the truth is that she, she loves them all. She has grandparents that are her favorite borderline over her own parents. It, it is quite funny. Um, you know, I, we, could, we could get sad about it, but instead we take it more as a funny thing where yeah. we definitely have said to her more than once in response to something she said, we've been like, what's the matter? You, you don't want to hang out with mom and dad? And she's like, well, I want to hang out with grandma and grandpa and mom and dad. And it's like, <laughs> uh, okay, I get what you're doing here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, showing that intelligence. All right, we will yeah. call it favorite. I like that. Yeah. Um, I think this is it. To wrap it all up, you know this economics, finance stuff really well. We'll learn some couple of cool stuff. Um, stay connected to the people that you care about in your life, even though it's not easy. Pavel app coming soon. Pavel T-bills coming soon. On the next episode, we can actually do evaluation so you can tell me how much I need to charge. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Lona. Uh, we love Alona and we hope she can get on the podcast episode as well. She's, you know, your daughter is double, what do you call that? Double legacy, right? Like both mm-hmm. of her parents. Yep. So that's going to be impressive. Any, uh, you got anything for me? Uh, I would probably say that uh, the big, the bigger mistake you made was having me on and not, and not my yeah. wife. Well, she's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. She's, she's way better. And uh, I can't wait to get her on. So after, after uh my can you put in a good word for me you can make that happen i will do my absolute best and i can tell you that uh anyone anyone i have spoken to over the years that let's say first meets me and then meets her what eventually ends up happening is that they start to talk to me far less and they start to talk yeah because she's obviously the better one i mean i know don't get me wrong without a doubt so you know, you, you made a mistake, Pavel, by having me on. You could have <laughs> her, but whatever. You you learn from your mistakes, and we'll work on getting her on. I really like that a lot. Yeah. Um, hey, thanks a lot. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you, man.
Well, that was the last episode, episode two of Columbia Reunion. Columbia Reunion is a limited run series of the Pablo cast where we interview Columbia, Columbia alumni and learn what they've been up to, learn from their expertise, have a jolly good old time. Uh, please like, subscribe, do all that jazz, give me all the stars, hundreds, millions of stars. Please, 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 please. give me stars, please, please. And um, you can find me, Pavel, the Data Pavel, on datapavel.com, Data Pavel on Twitter. Thanks again to Alan Sokolitsky, our guest. It was a, I really enjoyed the conversation. You can find Alan on LinkedIn. Alan Sokolitsky. You can spell it. I believe in you guys. Um, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll catch you soon. Bye-bye.